back to the show. I'm excited tonight. We have got our second Jay Posna special in the last month. Dr. J.R. Cruz from Brown University is back on the show, and this is going to be a sports-focused uh, discussion. So you may pick up this episode listening to either Pete Sports or Pete's Ortho, and uh, wherever you catch it, we're glad you're joining us. Dr. Cruz, welcome back. How have you been? I'm good, Carter. Thank you. How are you? Excellent. We were just talking before the show. We were both spending a lot of time twiddling our thumbs because so many surgeries are getting canceled right now. It's uh, We're recording in early January, and um, I just uh, had six Omicron-positive patients in a row who canceled surgery, so I think I've got the hospital record so far, but uh, <laughs> we're both trying to get some work done. Um, so last time we were here, we got to know Dr. Cruz a little bit. We learned his favorite surgery is a tibial spine avulsion <laughs> repair to help the audience get to know you a little bit. What is your favorite OR instrument? I'm not sure why it evolved into this, but I like the, uh, people have different names for it, but I call it, it's the schnitt, you know, the tonsil snap. That's what we called it in residency, but uh, I started calling it the schnitt. It's, it's my dissection tool and also my teaching tool. And I use it uh, during arthroscopy where uh, instead of using a trocar to kind of open up the uh, incisions, I, I stick the schnitt in there and then open it up. And I feel like that gives you a better path into the joint. And yeah, I use it basically to show the resident or the fellow like where I want them to cut. <laughs> you know, yeah. I kind of spread the, I spread the tissue for them and then here, cut, cut between the lines. And even my, the scrub techs know that you know, that's, that's the thing I'm going to ask for next. Or if I'm having some sort of word fighting difficulties, they know just to hand me that thing. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm happy. That's great. We had an attending in residency and the, the joke was he could walk any resident through the surgery just with a suction tip. So I think that yeah. the is like the step up, the next level of that. Um, we called yeah. it the burlisher in residency. Mm. And I, I can't break the habit. And, you know, I just keep asking for a burlisher and no one knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, I've, I've, actually, I've never heard of that. All right. Well, similar format to last time, we're going to talk about some recent Jay Posna articles. Our first one up is a review called Arthroscopic Saucerization and Repair of the Lateral Discoid Meniscus. It came out the month before last in Jay Posna. It's a technique paper from Singapore. Um, they reviewed some literature, talked about how they do saucerization and some points I liked. They made a nice point about positioning I thought was cool about basically abducting the non-op leg way out of the way and putting the operative foot on a sterile trolley. So you have like a stable figure of four position without an assistant and being Jay Posna, which uh, always has great pictures and really takes advantage of being an online journal. They have a really nice demonstration that I, you know, immediately copied and pasted into my own notes. They have a very nice depiction of some classic horizontal cleavage tears. Like you tend to get with discoid menisci uh, with that mucoid degeneration in the middle. And the authors point out that these tears, you know, traditionally it was thought they were just sort of hopeless, but now uh, there's some literature that says you can really clean them out and rasp them and repair them and they actually heal. And they pointed out that uh, you always want to leave eight millimeters of rim and that there's literature that shows less than eight millimeters has more tears in the future. Do you have any other favorite pearls for these cases, things you like to share with trainees? The thing that I underappreciated initially when evaluating these was how many of them are unstable, you know, particularly in the anterior horn. 
Um, you know, I'm not, not necessarily used to looking for anterior horn instability, but for, I always look for anterior horn instability with discoid menisci. And I guess the tip that I, oh, first of all, I agree. This was a great article, totally takes advantage of the format of JPOSNA with it being on electronic. You know, this, the video, which was extremely well done, is now available in perpetuity through JPOSNA and POSNA Academy. So for anybody out there that has um, some nice technique videos, this is definitely a good format for that. But going, getting back into evaluating the display meniscus, I mean, I, I really scrutinize that anterior horn. And, and I find the best way to do it is actually something simple. Just switch your arthroscope. Your viewing portal is usually the anterolateral portal, but switch the arthroscope to the anteromedial portal. And then now you really get a good look at that uh, anterior aspect of the lateral meniscus. And that's where I'm, I'm really scrutinizing the uh, anterior horn and seeing how unstable that is. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll probably do, you know, these, these aren't super common. Maybe I'll do two or three of these, you know, a year. But I would say just anecdotally, at least one or two of those three uh, has some significant anterior horn instability where I'm putting in, you know, outside in sutures. Yeah, that's a great point. I think the criteria for turning to sports after meniscus tears and especially discoid menisci or saucerizations is even more subjective than ACLs, which we talk about a lot on the show. How do you advance these patients back to sports? Yes, for, uh, yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't necessarily have a specific protocol for discoid meniscus. I tend to slow them down more so than say, um, you know, a meniscectomy or any, even an MPFL. I feel like MPFL reconstructions recover much more quickly than ACLs. But for the discoid, particularly if they have some anterior horn instability, I, re I really slow them down because the repair, I do it, but it, it doesn't always make you feel like warm and fuzzy because the tissue just is it's just abnormal. And I always feel like I'm not getting as much bite or as much like kind of compression with my sutures as I want. But that's just kind of what they give you. So for them, I'm, I'm, I'm very careful, very slow. I wait, just like with my ACLs, I'll wait probably around nine months before you know, letting them really test it. It doesn't mean they're not doing anything for nine months, but not, you know, nine months before they, they get their return play testing and clearance. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. It's, it's hard to slow them down that long. Uh, <laughs> like they feel better or faster than an ACL, but I think that's really valuable advice. And honestly, like, I, I don't want to delude myself into thinking that they're not like testing that knee <laughs> before nine months, but that's kind of the official, official stamp of approval is, uh, you know, nine months before you can go back. Got it. Party line recorded. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Next up, a review article out of Boston Children's. This one is called The Bare Bones of Concussion, and it's written specifically for the sideline orthopedic surgeon. So it's a very practical article, especially for people that cover sporting events. So before I say too much about it, uh, what kind of sporting events do you cover as a sports surgeon? Yeah, so our group um, in Providence, uh, we cover Brown, but I'm actually not part of that uh, rotation in covering the Brown football team. Our group, however, does cover the Providence Bruins, which is the uh, AHL affiliate Boston Bruins team. So these guys uh, that are playing for the Providence Bruins are just uh, one step below the NHL. And a lot of them are going up to play for the Boston Bruins during the season. So our group covers them. I, I cover a few games uh, a year. So that this is where this article would be pertinent for me is for any sort of concussion evaluation pertaining to those guys. Gotcha. So as usual, you know, when you read about concussions, I feel like the conclusion is always there more shrouded and questions than answers. But we're gradually getting some answers. For example, there's lots of objective tests now. 
But as the article points out, it's still really a clinical diagnosis. And one thing I really liked about this article that I think plan to use it for in the future is it gives some nice protocols for returning to school and for returning to sports, just easy references that you can look up. To me, though, the biggest issue with concussions is making that diagnosis when it's not obvious, you know, when the patient's not overtly confused or throwing up or staggering around on the sideline. So how do you go about that? If you have a patient, you know, with a big hit to the head and they're neurologically okay, what's your sort of approach on the sideline? Short of them seizing or actually being unconscious, uh, you're right. It it can be um, challenging. I, I just go back to my medical school training, <laughs> you know, we're thinking about these with a quick like neurologic exam. So I'll do a quick sideline neurologic exam of cranial nerves and whatnot, but then also asking them about, you know, orientation questions. So, you know, what's your name? Where are you? What, what's the date? Uh, you know, what period is it? You know, the basic things like that to orient them. And then you can get a little more complex, like what period is it? What's the score? Who, who was the last team to score, et cetera. And if they're pretty fast out with those questions, then okay, then you can feel comfortable, you know, letting them go back in. But if there's any stumbling, you know, with simple questions like that, that if you're part of the game, you should know the answers to these questions, then I think that's when you, you know, your spidey senses should be tingling a little bit. And I think in the article, you know, Dr. Beasley, uh, who wrote it, he's really good about pointing out when in doubt, you know, sit them out. So I think that you can never go wrong by just sitting somebody out. Um, yeah. I don't think I, I don't think you'll ever be faulted for that. Definitely. Other references in the article that were cool, just it has, you know, sort of the questionnaires for like the SCAD 5 on-field assessment, which it sounds like is essentially what you do. But I thought that was just a really useful um, reference that I'll keep on hand. Just questions like, what venue are we at today? What half is it now? Who scored last in the match? Yeah. What team did you play last week or last game or whatever? Did your team win the last game? Stuff that they should know pretty easily. And then obviously you can get into much more detailed off-field assessment, but I think that on-field assessment for sports surgeons is really valuable to have at your fingertips. Next up is a current concept review. Uh, This is called Physical Exam for Sports Medicine Knee Injuries in Pediatric Patients. You are one of the co-authors, as well as several other friends of the podcast. Pam Lang is one of the co-authors. Andy Pennick, who's been on several times. Jen Beck, who's been on several times. Uh, Henry Ellis, who's been on. And I like this so much. I now give this to uh, lots of residents before our first clinic together so that we can discuss it after clinic immediately. You know, it was a good review. I even learned some stuff. The, the lever test isn't something that I use regularly. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, yeah. you know, I, learned, I, I learned that too. Yeah. I'm sort of excited to try it. Do you have any sort of favorite physical exam pearls uh, you tell residents or fellows or sort of things that this article brought to mind for you? Yeah, so I'm glad to hear that you are handing this out to trainees because that's it. that is exactly what our group was thinking of when we wrote this up is that this would be a really great article for people in the clinic just to you know give the medical students, residents and fellows just to have. So I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. All the authors are coming from kind of a pediatric sports medicine background. And I think a lot of the people that are evaluating sports injuries that don't come from a peed sports background kind of neglect like the rotational profile. I think that's one of the things that should be more part of a routine, you know, knee exam, you know, gait examination, just to see what their uh, foot progression angle is, and then lying them down prone to see what their hip rotation is and looking what their tibial torsion is. Because uh, particularly for the patellofemoral patients, a lot of them have these torsional abnormalities, which 
which could be contributing to you know their knee pain or contributing to their instability. So I think that's that's one of the things that is highlighted nicely you know in this paper. Yeah, I love that point. Um, you're preaching to the choir. I feel like the residents probably think I'm like the rotational profile lunatic at this point because that's one of the things <laughs> I talk to them most about and really just hammer home patellar instability, hip pain. It's so valuable yep. to understand their rotation. So let me take you off topic a little bit here and ask, so for a patient with patellar instability, let's say they mm-hmm. dislocate twice or they dislocate, keep having instability symptoms, time for surgery, they've got femoral antiversion. Mm-hmm. They've got an elevated TTTG. How often, if ever, are you just derotating the femur? Or are you usually doing yeah. a TTO with it or yeah, NPFL awesome routinely? Yep. So awesome question. This is still I'm still um, let's say refining my indications for doing a derotational osteotomy of the femur. I thinking back, I'm yet to do one in practice. You know, I've been in practice for five or six years. We did a few in fellowship specifically for patellar instability for the real, you know, for the ones that are really internally rotating off the bed. <laughs> you know, they're, they're like a hundred degrees of internal rotation. So my uh, rotational assessment, so I'll do a rotational profile and then, you know, on the MRI, I'll measure, measure their TTTG. I'm doing more, way more TTOs than I am femoral derotational osteotomies for any sort of lateralization of the extensor mechanism. However, I'm actually seeing a patient, I was just reviewing my clinic, my upcoming clinic. I'm seeing a patient tomorrow who had a TTO, had patellar instability. I think she had an MPFL reconstruction with a TTO, and now it's having persistent instability. And I looked at her most recent MRI. And it really looks like she's got a, a ton of femoral, of internal rotation of the femur that is probably contributing to her persistent uh, instability. I'm yet to examine her. Um, I haven't seen her yet. I just saw it in, on my schedule. But this is one where I'm thinking about, um, you know, she's already had the TTO. Presumably she's at M- an MPFL. You know, what else is there to do? And this might be one where she might be an indication for me to derotate her femurs. You know, honestly, it's really hard also just to, for, for myself, for a virgin knee to talk somebody into you know, doing a de- femoral derotation. I think that's, that could be a difficult conversation. Although if it really does meet an indication, I think it's something that you have to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. That's nice for your decision making that they've already done the TTO. Now. <laughs> no, no, <you're laughs> you don't right, have to choose exactly. between them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I appreciate that insight. It's one of those things I'm also sort of refining my indications for. I think I've only done probably two in practice. I know there's papers out there that show how miraculous the derotation can be for patellar instability. It just hasn't been quite as powerful as the TTO in, in my experience so I, far. I, I think also, I feel like um, in residency and fellowship, a lot of the kids that we did derotational osteotomies in for patellar instability were spastic. We're more, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the cerebral palsy kids with just really bad instability. And, you know, we know that those kids do have kind of persistent femoral antiversion. So I think for, for that population with the spasticity, I think doing bony work, is probably easier to swallow. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It makes a lot of sense in that population. Okay. Last question on that article do you worry when you when the residents are doing like the pivot shift over and over again in the OR? Do you think there's cartilage damage inflicted by a pivot shift exam? And do we do too many? Um, I, I never actually thought of this until until you just asked it. 
And yeah, I guess it's like, oh, uh, you have an unstable APC pelvis. Here, feel this, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, are you, yeah, you got everyone it. come you feel it. Yeah. yeah, everyone come feel it. At the same time, you know, we are um, with a baby hip exam. You know, you have a good Barlow <laughs> maneuver. You know, you're having all the you're having everybody come in and feel it. And I don't know if you're necessarily worried about the cartilage in that situation. You know, I, I'm not so worried about about doing a pivot shift. Uh, maybe I should be. I don't know. Now that you're now that you have me thinking about it, but in my mind, you know, they're asleep, they're relaxed, and it's not like they're they're weight bearing. You know, now if, if they kept pivoting while they were playing sports, that's probably not a good thing. But if you're pivoting them while they're asleep on the table, supine, relaxed. It's probably not terrible. I mean, I wouldn't do it a, a thousand times, right? But, uh, but for the purposes of education, I think it's, uh, I, I, I think it's a reasonable thing. Is, is that something that you have thought about before, or uh, I, were you taught that in training? Or no, I, I wasn't taught that. Just it was just something that sort of feels wrong sometimes when you see yeah. it you know, pivoting multiple times yeah. in a row, yeah. Um, yeah. whether it's in the OR, or like on you know a view medi video or whatever. But I, I, hopefully you're right. You know they're they're yeah. asleep. They're not weight bearing. And, you know, if it's going to help you make your decision for what you're going to do, like if you're trying to decide if you want to do a lateral extraarticular tenodesis, then I think that makes perfect sense. So you, you, hold on, I have a question for you. You brought it up with LET. You know, I'm still kind of, uh, I've done a few, I'm still refining my indications. What are your indications for LET? Also definitely refining, but basically most of the the stuff that gets thrown around, a, a revision, certainly. Yeah. Um, I did one in a chronic ACL. I think it was about two years old or so. Hyperlaxity for sure. You know, I really go back and forth a lot on just the standard, big, strong, serious athlete who's going to be putting, mm -hmm. you know, superhuman loads on their knee just yeah. by doing what they're doing, even if they have pretty normal anatomy. I, I did one in a patient like that, very large, strong person who hopefully has a lot of pivoting left ahead of him. But I, I haven't made up my mind about that population yet. The The literature that's come out is incredibly impressive, at least in the context mm -hmm. of hamstring graphs. And I think once we see more about BTBs and then especially quads, because I'm doing almost all quads, that's that's yeah. the data that I really look forward to having. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, definitely for yeah, revision. If they have a lot of uh, recurvatum, you know, that's where I'll I'll do it. If they're particularly lax, but yeah, I can't think of a case where I've done one just because the patient the patient had a pivot. Yeah, you know? yeah, I know some people do it for a large pivot. I think that probably makes sense. Um, it's made me much more tuned into the pivot exam after doing the ACL reconstruction, though. I wouldn't always necessarily do that or pay that much right. attention to it. And now I very seriously focus on a pivot shift after doing the ACL reconstruction. And if it pivots, then it, I'm then definitely you, doing you it. Added it. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's a good call. All right. Last article we've got another great one for residents. It's called Youth Elbow Throwing Injuries. You, again, are one of the authors, the senior author, in fact, with several other co-authors from Brown. And uh, you guys basically went through a series of the most common elbow injuries. My favorite part was the section on olecranon stress fractures and treating them operatively. It's a great picture with yeah. a, a screw across it's an olecranon true, yeah. stress fracture. Yeah. You know, on one hand, it seems relatively straightforward. On the other hand, it's not something I've seen or something I've treated. Is that something yeah. you've seen or is that mostly just coming no. out of literature review? 
No, actually, that is a page. So that case, that particular case is from Peter Chris, who's a co-author on the paper. Just a little background. Peter is one of my primary care sports medicine partners, and he has a very specific interest in baseball. Uh, his kids play, play baseball, and he's, uh, you know, it just it's one of his interests. So I, I, he sucks up all the baseball players, I think, in, <laughs> in the practice. He has a, a specific physical therapist that he likes to work with. There's like a mound in our physical therapy place <laughs> where, there, yeah, where there are kids throwing uh, after the recovering from uh, injuries, you know, Peter has uh, preseason youth baseball, like injury clinic, all, all this stuff. He also does kind of not formal 3D analysis, but he has some like software on his computer where he records, he'll record pitchers, throwing pitches, and he'll analyze them and then kind of, you know, get back to them about what they can improve. Uh, so that that's that's his case. So I'm lucky to have him as a partner where uh, most of the cases that I eventually see that have problems related to overhead throwing uh, are essentially they're surgical. <laughs> you know, uh, they either have an unstable OCD or or maybe they have like a really displaced beat up kind of elbow fracture or something like that. But most of the um, overuse stuff, Peter's by seeing, you know, uh, most of those. Gotcha. And you know, the the article goes into capitellar OCDs as one of these classic throwing injuries. What's your sort of treatment protocol for capitellar OCDs? Do you have a concise way to summarize sort of who gets microfracture, who gets a graft? So obviously most of them are going to be treated non-op unless they're unstable or if they have a, like a loose body or something. Yeah, these are challenging. In my my kind of overview is for the really focal lesions, like maybe less than five millimeters, I'll do a microfracture or chondroplasty, just kind of clean up the cartilage. Um, for the ones that are getting a little bit bigger, maybe five to eight millimeters, that's when I'm really considering doing an autograph plug. I actually just had one kid who is a wrestler who um, was having chronic elbow pain for years. And then by the time he saw somebody, he had this gigantic, uh, about 13, 14 millimeter uh, maximum oh. diameter yeah, OCD and a, you know, a loose body. And for him, I did a osteochondral allograft. So, nice. um, so but yeah, 10, obviously 10 millimeters or bigger, I'm thinking about you know, allograft between five to eight thinking about uh, autograph plug and then you know smaller lesions or maybe just uh even like partial thickness cartilage uh lesions then chondroplasty or or microfracture for those you know peter fabricant uh is one of my co-fellows uh, i don't want to speak for him you know i have a hand but i know that he's talked about doing cartilage allograft for those cases rather than uh, a plug yeah, I guess that makes sense if you got good intact underlying bone. Yeah. And, you know, same question again. Do you have any sort of favorite pearls or ways you like to explain sort of throwing mechanics and this sort of stuff to your trainees? You know, parents are always coming in asking about, oh, is it is it safe to throw a curveball? And I, I don't know what the correct answer is, but I think the answer I always tell them is it's not so much the, the type of pitches that you're throwing. It's just the amount of pitches that, that you're throwing. I, I stress to them that there are specific recommendations that, you know, is endorsed by Little League, Little League Baseball for, you know, the number of throws that, you know, your child should be throwing on a weekly basis. That's something that I, I kind of fall back on. Rather than the type of throw, it's a number of throw that is, I mean, I, I try to emphasize. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
the more you get into the sort of details of what you're telling them to do, I think the less likely it is they're, they're actually going to listen. So keeping it simple is good. You know, there's a yeah. the recent study that showed how much those pitch counts underestimate throwing, how much right. stress is going to the elbow just with, you know, regular throwing, non-pitching. So yeah, I think at the very least, got to keep them under those pitch counts. And then lastly, I know it's controversial, maybe controversial ad nauseum, but how do you approach the conversation with medial epicondyle fractures with parents and sort of guide them to either surgery yeah. or non-surgery? So you're right. Very controversial. There's, there's at least one prospective cohort, the memo cohort that is led up by Todd Lawrence uh, at CHOP. Hopefully we'll have some more answers, you know, upcoming regarding uh, how these patients do, whether they have surgery or not surgery. There's going to be a randomized controlled trial that I'm a part of. It's Jay Janicki at, in Chicago is heading up the, or he, he's part of the, uh, a study group that is providing the infrastructure to do this randomized controlled trial for media epicondyl fracture. So hopefully more answers in the future. Uh, but you know, for my indications currently are obviously displaced more than five millimeters. If it was associated with a dislocation, then I'm a, a little bit more apt to offer surgery just because I feel like there's a lot more trauma and instability with those. Uh, you know, if they're an over-athlete baseball or some sort of upper extremity athlete like wrestling or gymnastics, uh, my indications are a little bit broader for those. And then if they really have gross instability uh, on exam, uh, where they're, I just feel like it's it's going to continue and when I'm uh, giving them a valgus load, it's just going to keep going if, you know, if I don't stop. And that's when, for those, I will bias towards operative treatment. Have you had any that you non-op or that, you know, the family elected non-op and they had some symptomatic instability that you've had to deal with? Yeah, I've had one patient where uh, we, yeah, we elected non-op and they just had persistent pain. Not, not so much since more, maybe they were having micro instability. They were doing, you know, things, they weren't grossly unstable. They weren't like dislocating or anything, but they were having persistent pain. So for that patient, I, I did go back and, and kind of do a, do a revision of where I have, you know, with the problem with those, are those, those are, are much more difficult because, you know, it's displaced. It's kind of, uh, the fragment has migrated. So trying to get it back into like back where it belongs anatomically can be a little bit challenging. And then you're not exactly sure where it belongs necessarily because it doesn't look, you know, it's not fractured anymore. You don't know exactly, you know, where, where you need to put it. So that can be a little bit challenging. I do remember one case that I had in fellowship where it was, I think she was a gymnast and it was treated non-operatively and, and it was just a nightmare scenario where we really, we could not get it back, you know, anatomically uh, to where it belongs. So we just kind of did the best we could. Yeah, the, that, that's the thing. Like, it's hard to predict who's going to go on to a symptomatic non-union. Uh, we know from the literature that a lot, even, even if they're not united from a bony perspective, you know, a lot of them remain asymptomatic. So, you know, presumably a fibrous union, but the, the rare case that you get where they come back and are persistently symptomatic and now you have to treat those operatively, those cases are the ones that keep us up at night. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that data as well. Was that the impact? Study yeah. group, the Jay Janicki's yep. group. Yeah. yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. It sounds like really put together the infrastructure for a very impressive sort of prospective random, like the kind of research we need in orthopedics. Exciting okay. stuff. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, uh, hopefully, you know, it'll be a few years, but I think the motivation and infrastructure is there. Yeah. Uh, well, that's great. That is, uh, that's all I had for us tonight Four great articles. If, uh, you haven't checked them out, please do. JR, it's been great having you on these two episodes, getting to know you a little yeah. bit, even, you know, if it's via zoom, it's been really fun. Yeah. 
And please keep up the good work. Thank you for everything you're doing over at Jay Posna. It's really valuable. Yeah, thanks, Carter. And I uh, really enjoyed listening to the podcast. All right. Have a great night. Thanks. Thanks, man.